Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Hiki mai kake mai and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Alison Balance ho. Coming up tonight, we're in the field for a world first. Flying kakapo sperm. But first, we're in Hamilton in search of rubbish. Amanda Valois from Niwa is setting up a big citizen science project focusing on plastic pollution in streams. I meet up with her on an intermittently rainy day to find out the scale of the problem and what she's trying to achieve. We're at Donnie Park in Hamilton, and this is a beautiful urban stream here. But because it's an urban stream, it suffers from a lot of rubbish. And before we've even left the street where we've met, oh, yes. we can see the problem. Uh, the stormwater grates here, these catch pits, they collect all the water that runs off of people's driveways and pavement. They also collect all the rubbish that you leave behind or you don't properly dispose of. And so I see a lot of plastic bottles. I see a rubber glove there and some random ball that is going to eventually make its way to the Waikato River. And that's just in the bit next to my car. Over the road there's a couple of more plastic bottles. It's incredible. Oh, yeah. And, so, and it's, this is actually a really nice you would have thought tidy suburban street. Yeah, and, and if you asked anyone who lived in these houses, they would say that they recycle, they don't litter, but this has come from somebody's house. Well, let's follow where the water goes and take it from there. So what's your, your research area? So my research is on citizen science and how we can involve communities more in scientific research. And so because plastic is a hot-button topic... My aim in my research right now is to work with communities to come up with a solution to the plastic uh, crisis. Clean up as we walk along. So there is no rubbish bin in this park. Um, I don't know if that's intentional, but because of it, people come and have a nice sit here and look at the river and then leave behind whatever they brought with them. But we almost need to start carrying personal little rubbish bins with us. There she goes again. There was another piece of plastic. So it's a beautiful shaded stream, lots of native fish in this stream, lots of kids come here to play, and when you go down to the stream, I'll take you on a little path, you'll see how the rubbish kind of builds up behind these debris dams and behind the rocks and gets trapped there, and that's where especially the plastics will break down into smaller plastics called microplastics, and it becomes food for the fish in the stream. Well, this is a good day to be doing it because it is intermittently raining quite heavily on and off, so there is stormwater surging down into all of these urban streams. Yeah, when it rains, I get really excited and I run out with my bucket and see what I can collect. And you're surprised at what the rain can move. Large pieces of plastic road cones are quite common. Uh, when I work in Wellington, we get road cones a lot, and a good rainstorm can move a road cone pretty far. So I'll bring you down to the stream. As I suspected, the rain has 
brought back with it lots of plastic. Actually, it looks like it's been there for a while. Um, if you look across there, where it reaches the top banks, it leaves behind candy wrappers and... Oh, yes, with the little flood markers. And there's, yeah. a, there's a soda can down there as well as a bottle. Yeah, a big plastic thing. So it's pretty unsightly, but it's more than just unsightly. Fish often get trapped in these plastic bags. They'll either accidentally swallow them or it'll get wrapped around their bodies. They'll get cut on the cans. Um, if there's nappies around, that's introducing a lot of pathogens and making people sick when they try to swim in a creek. So it's more than just something that doesn't look nice. It's actually quite harmful to the environment. So the bucket you're carrying, is it just for putting your rubbish in? Yeah, I try to bring a, a rubbish bucket with me wherever I go now to pick up what I see. I try to see if I find the same types of rubbish at different sites or if there are certain sites that are characterised by a certain type of rubbish and try to link that to the people that live in the area and the type of waste management they, they have in the area. So as well as the plastic bottles and the cans we've seen, what have you got in your bucket so far? Lots of food wrappers, food products, people having a packet of crisps and then leaving that behind, or a straw, people had a granola bar. So food seems to be the biggest thing. And lots of just random small plastic pieces that have broken off from larger items. Cigarette package. So cigarettes, especially their butts, they're the perfect size to be eaten by something like an eel and, and they have a lot of toxins in them. So it's something I really try to grab if I see. I mean, as you already alluded to, this is just the big visible rubbish as well. So there's lots of smaller stuff that you and I don't see very easily. Yeah, lots of microplastics and, and small plastics. And what is hard to get people's attention around is they don't see themselves littering microplastics. So if you ask somebody, do you contribute to microplastic pollution, they would say no. But it's these big pieces of plastic, if they stay in the river long enough or exposed to sun, they break down to microplastics quite quickly. And so everyone, their one piece of plastic they litter suddenly becomes a million pieces of fish food uh, within, you know, six or seven months. So this sampling you're doing, is this what you're doing as the Citizen Science Project? Yeah. So we have the citizen sampling rubbish, which includes large pieces of plastic, and then the scientists will go to the sites as well and sample the microplastics so we can get a full picture of all the types of, of plastics and rubbish at a site and how... Big pieces of plastics break down into little pieces. Have you done that here in Donny Park? I haven't done it in Donny Park yet, so our focal catchment is actually in Wellington at the moment. And uh, where's that? And the Kaifarafara, yeah. The Kaifarafara is perfect because it starts really pristine in Zealandia and then very quickly goes through heavily urbanised and, and very commercial um, catchment. And then by the time it gets to the estuary, it, it's quite a degraded stream. So we'd like to track how rubbish changes along that gradient. And the nice thing is that Zealandia wants to do a, a sort of hills-to-sea restoration project on that stream as well, so it would tie in nicely with that. Oh, yeah, and their 100-year vision. If we can incorporate you know, a plastic-free catchment into that type of vision, it would, it would be the first in the world and really revolutionary. So is it a dirty catchment in terms of rubbish? It is. It is pretty bad. And I think it's because the riverbanks are so steep and people's houses are often facing the back of it, so they don't really see that the rubbish immediately kind of falls from the back of their house down this really steep bank and into the stream. So right after a rain, it's uh, chock-a-full of, of rubbish. And lots of microplastics, I take it. Oh, yeah. Um, and they have a really good eel community, especially in Otari Whitlam's Bush, and, and I'm wondering, in addition to all the little 
um, fishies that the eels are eating, what type of plastics they might be taking in as well. So once you've quantified some of this plastic and you've quantified the microplastics, what are you going to do with that information? So once we know what is there, um, we want to figure out where it's coming from. So is it coming from people littering? Is it coming from the wind blowing recycling into the water? Or is it coming from wastewater overflows or stormwater pipes? And then once we know what and where, we can begin to stop it. And stopping it can involve lots of different strategies from putting in traps in the stormwater drains to catch the rubbish, um, getting people to bring their own coffee cups if we find out it's a lot of wasted coffee cups, putting something over the recycling bins to stop the rubbish from blowing away. So we need to target our interventions, but we can't do that until we know what is there. Do you have any sense yet? Have you done any of that analysis? From overseas analysis, it's actually artificial turfs and car tires are a huge source of microplastics, which is really surprising. I'm not sure how many artificial, you know, fake grass turfs are in the Kaifarafara, but if they are, that could be an interesting source. Well, thinking wider in Wellington, there's a massive one in the Civic Square. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And does that mean we have to start thinking more about how we design our public spaces if they're contributing plastics to the water? So there's going to be quite a lot to think about. Yeah, it's, it's easy to think about banning bags and microbeads and, and bringing your own straw, but uh, eventually we'll have to think wider about all the different plastic sources and maybe a more efficient ways that we could use plastics because like, I don't think plastics are evil, they have their place, but we need to think about their entire life cycle. And we have to remember that in the five R's, recycling is the last uh, refuse is actually the first R, so we need to figure out ways to refuse plastic, and it might mean not purchasing products that are covered in, in plastic and, and kind of writing to the plastic companies who are packaging things and, and finding a better way to stop it from that, from that first point. Sometimes it's quite little things that can make a big change. So Wellington, the parking meters used to give you plasticized tickets, and people would stick them on their dashboard and then Wellington being Wellington, they'd leave them on their dashboard and they'd open the car door and the wind would blow it out. And there were plasticised parking tickets everywhere, but they've changed the whole parking system now so people use phones or they just enter the parking space that they're in. And so the plasticised tickets don't exist anymore. And it's, it's made a significant difference in the rubbish I've seen around my neighbourhood. Yeah, I think technology, you know, we're all sceptical at first about a really overly technical world, but it can actually save a lot of waste if we think about how to use technology efficiently to be environmentally friendly. So in terms of the citizen science study, um, what stage are you at and how long do you think it's going to be before you get some results, i.e. get a better understanding of where all that rubbish in the Kaifara Forest stream is coming from. So we're talking with the community groups right now and getting communities on board, figuring out where they think the most rubbish is and what rubbish really concerns them the most. So once we have a good sense of their values and, and how they feel the Kaifara Forest could be better, we're going to choose some sampling sites and start sampling hopefully in about April or May. And by the end of the year we should have a good sense of where the rubbish is coming from in this catchment. And your project must only be the small part of bigger projects because what these streams are is they're arteries that are feeding all this water and this rubbish down to the coast. Yeah, so inevitably this will end up in the ocean and about 80% of the marine plastics originate on land and are ferried by rivers. And so it's really not efficient to clean up the ocean. It's quite a big place and 
this is where we could be stopping it is before it gets into the rivers, before it makes its way out to the ocean. So we're not running around on boats trying to like sweep plastic up. So how rubbishy is the Kaifara forest home? Uh, so down by the estuary mouth, where it's probably at its worst, in, a, in about a 10 meter stretch, I found just over 1,500 pieces of rubbish. 1,500 pieces of rubbish. Yeah, that means everything from little tiny fragments of plastic cigarette butts up to large road cones, big drums that people have dropped. So everything upstream had kind of resulted in a, in a big gross pile of debris right before it got to the ocean. And I knew the next rainfall that 1,500 pieces were going to get pushed right out to the ocean. I suppose you could go out and do the sampling on your own, but why are you getting the community involved? For us, it's really important to have the communities involved because the communities are the ones who are going to stop the plastics getting in the streams. And we as individuals are the answer to the plastic pollution crisis we're facing. So when a citizen goes into the stream and collects some rubbish and identifies it and figures out where it comes from, they'll start to think, oh, well, I could change this behavior or change this activity and stop some plastic from getting in. Then they'll tell their neighbors and they'll tell their neighbors. And then suddenly you have a whole community that's working together to fix a problem. And I think our, our problems have to be fixed by the people who, who live, in, live in the area. And, and our communities are pretty much our answer. So I don't want to just do the research in my, in my little laboratory and then go tell them what they need to do. Thanks, Amanda. That's freshwater scientist Amanda Valois from Niwa. Kate Fakaronga mai kwekito tato al horihori kitareo erirangi o aotearoa. I'm Alison Balance and this is our changing world. If you're a keen nights listener, you'll already know that each Friday night Brian Crump is marking the International Year of the Periodic Table. Well, working on the principle that there's no such thing as too much good chemistry, RNZ has launched a sister podcast called Elemental. Professor Alan Blackman from the Auckland University of Technology and I are tackling the periodic table alphabetically. Out this week we've got Elemental, an introductory table tale, and our first episode on actinium. You can subscribe as a podcast, RNZ Elemental, in all the usual places and find us at rnz.co.nz slash chemistry. Now, in tonight's excerpt from my other podcast series, The Kākāpō Files, we're going to be there when the sperm copter delivers its first payload. This will all make sense in a minute. I was out and about with the Kakapo team on Fenuaho last week, finding out about their assisted breeding program, what it is and why they are doing it. This story begins with the sperm team getting ready to collect sperm from some young male Kakapo. The team includes Kakapo team members Deirdre Verko, Andrew Digby and Daryl Eason from the Department of Conservation, as well as German sperm expert Andreas Bublatt. So where are we, Andrew, and what are you here for? We're on loop track near Twin Rocks, um, up near the top of Fenuaho, and we're here to do some semen collection. So some of you have lugged a bit of gear up. A camp stall has just come out. Yeah, the camp stall to sit on. We've got some towels from catch gear, and we've got a microscope, which Daryl's been carrying, which is pretty heavy. It weighs probably at least 10 kilograms, and some batteries to power it, so... Yeah, quite a lot of heavy gear to shift up the hill. So first of all, we have to catch the bird, and who do you have in mind? Yeah, we're going to go and catch Guapo now. 
who is probably about two or three hundred metres away from here, hopefully near his bowl. And how are you going to find him? Um, we have telemetry sets with us. So this is a, what looks a bit like a, a big aerial with a cable connected to it, to a little piece of electronics, and that just looks for the specific uh, frequency that that bird transmits on. And we just listen for the beeps. Well, that sounds simple. Of course, it never actually is that simple. You're looking for a very quiet camouflaged kakapo as you noisily bush crash around in thick vegetation. But Deirdre and Andrew have done this many times before. And that's the sound of a very unimpressed kakapo scracking its disapproval at being caught. So one kakapo in a bag? Yeah. So who's that? This is Wolf. He ended up getting Wolf fast because he's a little bit closer than Glassy. And he was hiding in quite a big clump of garnia in a really nice little spot down here. I actually heard him before I saw him. He gave himself away. And then I was, I was within a foot of him before I saw him. <laughs> They're so well hidden. Yeah, he's he very well hidden. If he had kept quiet, he would have been quite hard to find. Bird in hand, we bush bash back to the track and back to the waiting sperm team. Daryl takes Wolf out of the bag and settles him on his lap, with his head covered to both keep him calm and keep that strong beak out of the way. Then, semen collection begins. So I just... Rubbing down his back, from his, around his kidneys to his cloaca. And usually, if their feet are trembling and um, like he is a bit, that's a good sign. And sometimes they respond by moving their tail to one side as well. Okay, promising. So you got a little bit then. A little bit, a little bit bubbly. So he gets almond as a wee treat. Yeah, just try and give him a treat afterwards. Just let them settle down a bit. So what are you going to do with the sample now, Daryl? Um, Andy's going to check for motility, how fast and how well each of the sperm are moving, and and then he will prepare it and put it in the fridge for further assessment later in the day down at back at the hut. So have you collected semen from wolf before? Just the one time last month. And why do you test it over time? So we will be trying to check every male because some individual males will have a lot of sperm abnormalities, especially deformed heads, and it's good to know that if they are mating with a lot of females, then fertility might be quite low. If we've had some males like Lionel, who's, who's died recently, that had about 50% of his sperm was usually very deformed. So he was, he was sent off to an island away from the breeding birds. And also find out who are the good sperm donors, because some are more relaxed. So it's good to know who are our options when we want to carry on with artificial insemination. So you don't know why some of them have poor sperm quality? Um, it's probably to do with unbreeding, and we'll probably learn a little bit more with that over time. 
also moving over to the main with the microscope. <laughs> what are you doing? I reduced the samples so I can now assess the motility. The concentration would be too high to check it directly, so I take a diluted sample, put it on a slide, cover it with another slide, and then I can directly see how fast the sperm cells are moving, if they are moving progressively, or if they are moving just on its place, or if they are moving not at all. So are they swimming well? Let's see. One second. Now, I know it sounds like Andreas is typing on an old-fashioned typewriter, but he's actually counting how many sperm are doing what in a few tiny samples. So the first counting we have in this field of view, we have five um, sperm cells moving progressively, um, ten moving on their place, and seven not moving at all. So the movement, the motility in this sample is not the best. And now when the sample is cooling down, the motility is decreasing quite rapidly. This is why we have here a um, um, heating mat on this microscope to keep it warm. They're sensitive wee things. Oh, they are. They are, yes. That's why it's so difficult to bring it alive and uh, fast into the female to produce the fertile eggs. So that's one morning on Fenuahau, collecting sperm from a couple of males for testing. The next day, it's time for something quite different. And I'm up on the other side of the island with Andrew Digby. A few hundred metres away on another high point is ranger Anton Marsden. My job right now is we're going to do a little drone test. So this is part of our assisted breeding programme and we're experimenting with using a drone to move our sperm sample across the island. Wow, so you're going to do a trial flight. So where are we at the moment and where are we flying it to? We're at Hell and we're going to fly to a place called Obswock and back. So we're going to go from Hell and back. Oh, nice one. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So this is just a little <laughs> practice run. And the idea is that the drone can travel the distances much quicker than we can. Sometimes we might walk between catching the male and, and finding the female. It might take us maybe two hours. Um, if we have two teams, one at the male, one at the female, we can probably fly that in about four or five minutes with the drone. So that saves a lot of time. Um, and speed and time is of the essence when we're doing artificial insemination. We... So you're adding flight to help save a flightless bird. Exactly. <laughs> Oh, well, so you've got somebody stationed at another point on the island and you've pre-programmed the drone? Yes, that's right. So we've pre-programmed the flight. So we've got, we're going to launch it from here. We, we're not carrying sperm today. This is just a test run. And then we've got Anton on another high point on the island. He's got a controller too, so he'll take over the drone and, and land it over there and then he'll send it back again. Take it away. Cool. Off she goes. Anton from Diggs, it's uh, about 300 metres from you now, over. Yeah, I can see it now. Just land it, and then try sending it back to me, just with the programmed route. Yep, OK, I'll give it a crack. So it got landed, and it's been yep. relaunched, and it's yes, heading home. Anton is flying it back, and we should be able to see it and pick it up very quickly. I can see it. So, another successful sperm copter test flight. And it's not long before there's a calm weather forecast and a female who's ready for artificial insemination. The female is Esperance and the Matrix, which is a document outlining how all the kākāpō are related, says that Arab 
is a good genetic match. Esperance, by the way, has already laid a clutch of eggs which are now being artificially incubated. She remated three nights ago, so now is the perfect time to inseminate her before her next eggs begin to develop their shells. The sperm team head to Arab's Patch on the far western side of the island. I'm on the eastern side with Deirdre and Andreas. Deirdre outlines the mission brief. This is a first for me and for the programme today. So we're going to attempt a sperm collection and delivery by drone, which is a kind of crazy idea, but it could work really, really well. So at the moment, Daryl and Andrew and Helena are on the other side of the island. They've just caught Arab and collected a very small sample from him, not quite enough for an artificial insemination. So they've released Arab and they're heading to Stumpy at the moment. Uh, hopefully they'll get enough sample from Stumpy to add to the Arab and then they'll get to a high point and they'll fly the sample across uh, to Anton who's waiting just at our high point above us and will attempt to do an artificial insemination. So it's a, it's a great idea because it will cut down the time that it takes to get the sample from point of collection to insemination which should hopefully increase our chances of success. So fresher sperm. So are you excited about this? I am so excited about this. It's it's something we thought up quite a few months ago and thought, I wonder if that would work. You have done a trial sperm delivery, I think, to make sure that the sperm didn't mind being flown by drone? That's right. We, we have tried that and, yet yeah, no, the sperm arrived in just the same condition as it, as it left. So we're pretty happy on that front. I guess there's a slight risk we could lose the drone and the sample. But the benefits, if we can get this working, uh, of reducing the time from collection to insemination, and if we can actually increase our chance of success, I think that's worth that risk. OK, well, you better find the female. We better. We've got a very important job. <laughs> we don't want to disturb or catch Esperance just yet, but we need to know where she is. It's not long before Deirdre has scoped out where she's hanging out. And while Stumpy has taken a bit of finding... Daryl's back on the radio to say they have a sperm sample. Um, Helena is just making her assessment of Stumpy. I think we've probably got enough between him and Arab, so we'll give you a bell soon about what's happening. Ah, that's fantastic. We'll definitely be going in for Esperance from her nest track, so all good. OK, I hope that she's in a good position. And there's no wind. It's fantastic. I know, perfect day for droning. OK. Exciting. We'll um, catch up with you soon. Yep, they're okay. It may be in the air very soon. Exciting. Are you excited? I am very much excited, yes. Really looking forward to receiving the sample and then luckily we get the aspirants catch caught soon. We're heading to where Anton is at Twin Rocks and by the time we get there, the drone is about to leave the other side of the island. Yep, good to go. Oh yeah, there she is. Yep, I've just picked it up. It's looking good, I've got a visual. Yep, we'll do. You are anxiously scanning the horizon, Deirdre. Thinking that it's quite ironic that some kākāpō seaman is flying across the island. This is quite a moment. <laughs> it's one of those historic kākāpō moments. Yep, so far so good. So it's about 2k in. my nails but I'm biting my nails <laughs> this is really exciting it's almost scary 
<laughs> you look remarkably calm, Anton. <laughs> <laughs> about 600 metres away. That's fantastic. Is it oh, dropping? It's dropping. Is it the obstacle avoidance? Yeah, it's going up again. <laughs> That's really cool. <laughs> really fun. It's so cool. I'm so excited. <laughs> Let's see what's in there. Look at that. That's the quickest sperm delivery ever. Here it is. This is our sample we're going to use. Looks good. Good volume. Let's put it in the fridge so we keep it cold and warm it up when we're ready for the insemination. Hey, Diggs and Daz from D. We have a fantastic sperm sample over at Twin Rocks. Thank you so much. Okay, <laughs> yeah, hey, it worked. Hey, wicked. Thanks, Anton. Thanks, guys. <laughs> so what's your nickname for this uh, sperm delivery drone, Deidre? <laughs> oh, yeah. Chloe Kulkuri is. <laughs> <laughs> I might have to get you to explain that joke in a minute, but first you have a bird to catch. We do. Let's go get Esperance. I'll spare you the next half an hour as we crash around after Esperance. She's getting the better of us. Yeah, she is. Suppose to say there's been a lot of bush bashing involved and Esperance can move through this country a lot faster than we can. But our perseverance pays off. She gave us a bit of a run around to start with. I think it's so dry at the moment that the forest floor is just so crunchy when you walk through it, it's quite hard to approach quietly. So she, she took off at great speed, but we managed to keep up with her, and then she climbed a small tree. Just out of reach, but we managed to get her moving a little bit through the canopy and then managed to catch her out of a, out of a tree. So we've got her in the bag. It made the drone bit look easy. <laughs> so talk me through what the process for artificial insemination is going to be. So I'm going to hold her with her cloaca or her vent. Ah, hence uh, the cloacal courier. Yes, cloacal couriers. Uh, uppermost. So she's basically going to be held upside down. She is. Now we have the cooled semen sample, um, and now we'll, we'll suck it up out of the tube, and um, then we will warm it up. By being cool, those sperm have just saved some of the energy? Exactly. We don't want the sperm to waste the energy by running during the time between... Um, desemination and insemination, so we cool it down, and when we are ready for the insemination, then we warm it up again, so that the semen is agile and motile and is ready to go to its place. Very medical sounds in a very natural setting. Mm. Yeah, everything's been sterilised, so it's just been opening open now. And, and any woman who's had a cervical smear will appreciate some of the instruments. Yes. <laughs> Does her cloaca look different to the birds who have not yet laid that you've seen? Yes. Because she's it's laid four eggs. easier to see the, um, the opening of the oviduct in the cloaca because she already had laid an egg. Um, so the oviduct of the cloaca is more everted and more swollen and you see some vascularization there so it's easier to find the entrance because an egg already went out there. Yeah. It seemed to go really well. It seemed to go really well. It, um, it was quite clean, so we didn't have any um, contaminations in there, no feces, no uric acids, which is quite important because the sperm will die quickly if the pH value in the cloaca or in the ovidic would be 
contaminated by uric acid, so it will be acid and this semen will die quickly. This was not the case, so um, she is quite calm. Semen is in its place. Now we have to hope that one of the sperm find yeah. its way to the egg cell. So how do you feel now? Relieved. Yeah. Yeah, no, it all went, it all went well. <laughs> Let's just hope it's worth it. And uh, she didn't mate with either Stumpy or Arab, so if she has fertile eggs and produces chicks, then down the track we'll be able to learn who's the father of those chicks is, and maybe it was Stumpy or Arab. Just what every girl needs after pretend sex is an almond to chew on. <laughs> and off she trots. Mm-hmm. <sighs> and a very big thanks to the Department of Conservation's Kākāpō Recovery Team. And that's the show. But you can find all the episodes of the Kākāpō Files podcast, as well as the story about citizen science and plastic pollution, at our webpage rnz.co.nz slash Our Changing World. I'll also be posting all the episodes of the Elemental Periodic Table podcast there as well, so there's lots to keep your ears happy. Do stay in touch with us. We're on Twitter and Facebook as RNZ Science. Thanks for listening, but for now it's good night from me, Alison Balance. Kia paitopo. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.